Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. That's his tough Irish voice. Anyway, today our special <laughs> guest... It goes with the IEX Alumni Series. I think we should call it that now. We have John Nunziati, formerly with IEX Listings. Welcome, John. The the IEX diaspora that has spread out to all of the far reaches of the financial markets. That's right. I'm I'm uh, the Brennan has no idea what that word means. I I like these words like that because because he's confused about what it means. Yeah, he spent all weekend practicing the pronunciation of diarrhea. Anyway, John Nunziati. (laughs) Welcome, welcome back to IEX on the podcast. You might be regretting this already. Twenty seconds in, <laughs> I would if I were you. Yeah. I, yeah, there's definitely some some concern here, but no, it's good to be back. Good, good to talk to you guys. Can we jump in a little bit on ESG because like we're an equity market structure and we talk a lot about uh, potential upcoming SEC proposals, but there is an SEC proposal out there around reporting changes to ESG, I believe, and I'm sure I'm guessing that was probably something that kicked off the debate at Neary. Yeah. There, there actually are many propo- regulatory proposals out in affecting ESG involving both corporate issuers as well as asset managers and various other oh, proposals. Look at this Desperia he's showing us. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Thank you, John. Now, John yeah. Nunziati, our guest, can you please yeah. give us some time? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, ESG, it's getting more attention, but it's not just a new thing. I mean, companies have always had a focus at some level on environmental or social or governance issues. But now you've got a whole lot more investors who are incorporating ESG into their long-term view of a company valuation. And and they make it a major part of their investment decision where it used to just be about the financial outlook, the financial performance of the company. But if you think about the G, the governance part of it, that that was always a focus for a company. They they had to take into account things like succession planning and executive comp and and business continuity and and crisis management. And in a way, the pandemic highlighted that because, and I know you talked about it with Paul uh, last session, the response to the pandemic was a demonstration of a company's ability to respond to a crisis. But as the pandemic unfolded, investors were focusing on not just what they were doing to protect their employees, but also you know, their suppliers and other stakeholders, and that became part of the story. There was obviously a lot of stuff going on, you know, in the U.S. from a social standpoint in um, 2020, and then human capital became a topic that, that companies wanted to talk about. And following the death of George Floyd and all the protests that followed that, that became a driver for corporate efforts on equality and diversity and inclusion and there were a lot of companies that that came out responding to that with new messaging and new goals or or metrics on social justice and and diversity and a lot of those were done in the the earliest earnings reports during the pandemic and now we're seeing companies get scrutinized by the those ESG investors to determine you know who's made progress and who hasn't well, and, so, and they're, they're being scrutinized not just by those folks, but by an additional um, set of stakeholders, because a lot of those issues that you mentioned, including ESG, frankly, if we're talking about uh, climate change and mandating um, specific 
steps taken to combat climate change. Certainly when you talk about uh, board diversity and other measures of inclusion and um, various other kinds of social goals, there's a political component to this as well. And so, uh, you know, the, the increased interest in institutional investors and in getting um, corporations to commit on these things has also drawn a bit of a backlash from uh, people in some political quarters, I, I gather, who are concerned about kind of, uh, you, you know, corporate, corporate governance and engagement being used to achieve other kinds of political means. So how do you think corporations are dealing with those kinds of conflicts? You know, it's a challenge because you have executives, you know, management teams that feel strongly about some of these causes and may even want to use their platform to be able to convey that viewpoint. And I think the challenge from a from an investor relations standpoint is to make sure that those views and, and that emotion, that concern over some of these causes can be directed towards the continued benefit of the corporation. And And now with the purpose of the corporation being, you know, it used to be you focused on the, you know, the company existed to improve the shareholder value for the benefit of the shareholders. But now there's much more attention on the benefit of all stakeholders. So now you've got management teams saying we need to take a position on any of those types of topics. And that I think the, the fine line is, is it something that the company should be taking a position on or is it something that the company should be, you know, an observer on? Right. Well, it's also a question. It's not just a question of whether the corporation is serving the goals of a broader set of stakeholders, uh, but what shareholders care about. Right. The question mm-hmm. is, what do 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 shareholders really only care about? Uh, you know, next quarter's financials and long-term prospects for dividends and earnings growth and all of that. Or do they, they carry about, care about this broader set of questions? And, um, you know, should, should companies be responding to that? Right. And, and I think, I mean, it's a great point because you've got this trade-off of are investors comfortable with seeing more, we'll put it under the umbrella of, of social change, seeing the company accomplish more social change with a, maybe a slightly you know, less advantageous financial outcome. Um, the but there are, no. <laughs> that's what, that's what we'll, <laughs> they, we'll, they want we'll both. <laughs> they yeah, want yeah. both. Right. And, yeah. and you work to try to, you know, maximize both. And you, and you I think, said in that seat, John, when you were like, uh, an IRO, right? Um, yes. I'm just curious, like not naming names, but over cocktails, is there, is there a frustration that the, this additional onus is put on that group or is, is there a perception that maybe, Investors' public decry of giving a crap about environment is more a box check. Hot take here. Yeah, I, I think I think <laughs> you heard it here first. Sure, force me to pick a side. No, I think that there are investors who are entirely focused on take any one of those issues. But let's use climate because I think it's the easiest. There are investors whose sole focus is I want to invest in companies that are doing good from a climate standpoint. So I want to see something like, uh, a, you know, a carbon-free footprint commitment. I want to see a, you know, a zero carbon goal by 2030 or 2050. And there are other investors who, who are checking the box. Yeah, I want, I want to make sure that the company is climate aware and they're, they're making, you know, some disclosures about what they're doing from a climate standpoint. 
but I'm not using that as my sole criteria for decision making on my investments. And and this is from an IR standpoint and from a company standpoint, you have to decide, okay, you know, how much do we cultivate that interest? How much does our story draw those investors in versus how much of it is time spent that we know uh, the investor is maybe not as interested in that part of our story? John, I'm interested in your sense about uh, the attitude of of a lot of the the corporations that you're in contact with about the SEC uh, pending proposals on ESG disclosure. So obviously, this is a very um, highly controversial part of the SEC's agenda. There are a lot of people who are concerned that the SEC is trying to uh, mandate changes in climate policy through their disclosure mandate, you know, kind of like through the back door, if you will. Um, and then other folks that are saying, look, this is a basic core part of uh, the SEC's mission of providing investors with information that they care about, that is material to them in the current environment. What is your sense about where different corporate issuers fall out on this question um, of of how much they want to provide or willing to provide? I think this is a little bit of a case so far, at least, of be careful what you wish for, right? There's been a ton of discussion in the corporate community, not just limited to investor relations, because in many companies, you know, you've seen chief sustainability officers be named. It's no longer just an IR function to figure out, you know, how to address these ESG investor needs. But much of the discussion in that area has been focused on, we need standardization of reporting, you know, we need to be able to, you know, compare across companies and, and evaluate performance uh, consistently. Now the SEC starts to put some structure behind that. And there's, I think, a series or a cohort of companies that, you know, where issuers are concerned because those reporting requirements could be very onerous, right? In other cases, you know, companies are are looking at it and saying, oh, yes, this is exactly what we need. And it will show that we are ahead of our peer group or ahead of our competitors. Right. But kind of just on the core issue of should corporate uh, required corporate disclosure require, you know, sort of take into account the appetite and interest in investors in having information about how corporate operations affect these sorts of factors, environmental in particular. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, Chamber of Commerce and others have basically already kind of accepted that this is a part of what companies are going to be required to disclose in some measure going forward. So it feels like we've kind of like already crossed that bridge, but correct me if I'm wrong. I think certainly we have from the standpoint of expectations and the the SEC proposed requirements focus primarily on greenhouse gas, right? Greenhouse gas emissions. So the understanding that, sure, companies are going to have to report on greenhouse gas emissions, I think most issuers would accept that that's something that's inevitable. The level of disclosure and the method of disclosure and the the approach of of how do you make that consistent, I think that's the challenging part. And you could compare it to we're going to use GAP or non-GAP metrics, right? If you're using a gap metric, everybody understands it was calculated in a consistent manner. And if you use a non-gap measure, you have to show how that was calculated and provide that so that investors understand. I can see greenhouse gas emission reporting evolving along that line. 
Let's pivot a little bit away from ESG because I have a question based on you. You'd mentioned you moderated a panel at Neary National, right? Uh, I guess it was called messaging in a nonlinear environment, but it had to do with you know the implications of recessionary outlook, right? And in our business, obviously, we see stock prices plummeting, our PA accounts and our crypto accounts are getting destroyed. <laughs> but I'm assuming, uh, or maybe you can tell us on that panel. Were you talking to the IR folks as to how they handle that? What the different calls they're getting at a time of bad versus good? Like, what what was that about? Yeah, there, there was an aspect because of the fact that so much attention was being focused on the potential for a recession. That the nonlinear environment, the way the original thought on the panel was to look at companies who who have a an up and to the right story versus a company that has a very volatile story. Maybe it's a cyclical story. Maybe it's something that's more uh, impacted by the environment. But certainly, the recessionary concerns took over in most of that discussion, and it was timely. There was a ton of attention. You know, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? That came out that week. But the interaction between the panelists and the audience, a lot of that was around, well, how do you address these questions that you get from investors? And I think one of the overriding takeaways that I had was early on in, in one of the general sessions, they had asked for a kind of a, a classic stand up for your number of years of IR experience. And, you know, after, you know, they said how many people have 20 years or more, you know, group of uh, attendees sat down 10 years or more, five years or more, there was still something like 40% of the room standing with two years or more of IR experience, suggesting that, you know, there are tons of investor relations professionals who haven't experienced anything like a recession, even, you know, a pullback necessarily. So that, that, that generated some of the interest. On the investor side, one of the panelists, a Citadel uh, panelist, was talking about the youth on the buy side. And the fact that there are many analysts and portfolio managers on the buy side who have never invested through a recessionary environment. Um, and, and I would imagine it's not just recession, but it's also uh, higher inflation, right? So there are an awful lot of people, I assume, including an awful lot of IR professionals who have uh, never grown up in an era where you have more than, you know, two, three percent inflation, which by historical standards is very low. Um, but yep. it sort of feels like we're gravitating to an environment where um, the, the, you know, the rate will be uh, closer to historical norms than it's been. Absolutely. That's a very prescient point there, John Ramsey. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and <laughs> I try to use John's bullshit well. words here. They're, yeah. what was, what's uh, the they're, new not, they're, they're not bullshit words. They're very specific, <laughs> intelligent words. Uh, what's the new one? Are, he's uh, just he just he's introducing a second one this week. This is the first time this has happened, John Nunziati. Mm -hmm. it, mu yes. it must be you. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to start taking notes on those words. And, and, and by the way, you'd throw in interest rates there as well, right? Because, you know, interest rates have been historically low and suddenly we're seeing rising interest rates along with rising inflation, unemployment that, you know, is uh, an unusual scenario as well. So you've got this really kind of perfect storm of variables that very few, I'll call them investment community professionals, IR or buy side and sell side have lived through. But part of the discussion was being able to address from a management team perspective and message, how are you, you know, planning to handle this? And either relying on prior experience of the management team, this is what we did the last time our business was challenged by this volatility in the environment, or 
hey, we we as a team haven't been through this. We're a you know new, relatively new company, IPO'd three years ago. But these are the scenarios that we're planning for. These are the types of actions that we're prepared to take. And being able to message that from a, a leadership standpoint and build that confidence in the investor, that's really what you know, the IR team is looking for is, is helping the management team convey a, a, a sense of preparedness. And when you talk about the trading environment and volatility and all of that, um, uh, you know, one of the questions that people need to consider is the current equity market structure and um, are there changes that need to be made? And as you know, there are a lot of um, proposals that are out that the commission is that, that Gary Gensler, the chair of the commission is considering. Um, around the tick size and um, payment for order flow and similar kinds of issues. My sense is that most corporate issuers do not have a clear sense or understanding of those issues. Um, is, d- does that match your understanding? And is, is it there's something that, that they're trying to get smarter about? I think so. It, it definitely matches my, my view in terms of Especially when you when you add in the fact that so many of the members of the IR community are relatively newer, um, just haven't had that exposure. But you know, you've talked to Tim Quast in the past from Modern IR. Tim yep. has has spent multiple decades introducing a new language to try to um, help people understand the impact of of some of those types of changes and the impact of the mechanics of the market, the way it works today, based on you know, reg NMS that was implemented multiple decades ago. The idea of, and Ronan, I think you and I exchanged messages about payment for order flow, that that has created more volume and volatility in the market than most investor relations professionals are able to um, explain to their management teams. Uh, we, we talked to a client the other day who had something like 80% of their outstanding shares traded in daily volume on a couple of days in in a single week. Their owners weren't trading those shares. Those shares were all being handled by market makers and algorithmic traders. And the the people that I learned about when I was at IEX, you know, that that was, you know, it's almost like we should institute a a rotational program where every IRO spends six months at IEX. (laughs) Right. So the the question I have is if they need information about those kinds of issues, where do they get the information? My sense is traditionally they've just sort of looked to their listing exchange to sort of give them advice about it. The problem is, again, from our perspective, listing exchanges have all kinds of access to grind and conflicts of interest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they could benefit from having a more independent source of information. Absolutely. And yeah, I think the traditional listing exchanges have a disincentive to make that part of their educational story. And from a from an investor relations community standpoint, that's why people like Tim will you know be on panels when the Neary activities occur, and he's often a, a guest at chapter events as well, where where a local chapter will get together. Yeah, we we had uh, Tim as a as a guest. Yeah, he he's definitely he's he's definitely the the shining light of market structure, I guess in in that community. And I understand you. You and your role at Q4, what are you doing there? So, you know, Q4, we will support clients with traditional um, stock surveillance, which is, you know, a flavor of what Tim provides through Modern IR. But w- what we are really trying to help clients understand is 
what's the impact around some of these factors that, that have driven their volume up, increased their volatility. Maybe their, their spread has remained narrow artificially, driven by a lot of these factors. And we try to really help them understand when days like that are happening in the market, that their best approach is to be in close communication with their top shareholders because those are the holders that are going to really matter. If there's noise in the market and their holders aren't moving, they should be and, comfortable. And, and, and maybe not just top shareholders, but retail shareholders as well. I mean, one of the major factors affecting volatility has been the increasing participation in a lot of company stocks of uh, the rise of retail, retail investors, the rise <laughs> yeah, I just wanted of retail. To say that, the rise exactly. of retail. Exactly. Thank you, Ronan. That's very prescient. Um, Thank you. And, 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 That's and disparity. <laughs> diaspora is the word. I, but I anyway, refuse to pronounce it correct. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> but in any event, the point is that retail is becoming more important um, uh, as an issue. And t- traditionally, uh, corporate um, corporations engagement has understandably has been with uh, you know large um, institutional investors because those are people that they can um, more or less more readily engage with. Are, are they taking adv- account of the increased retail um, participation uh, and trying to engage in any way with retail investors on these issues? Definitely yes, uh, and I'll say yes particularly in cases where there has already been this increase in their retail ownership. Fairly straightforward to understand what proportion of your outstanding shares are owned by institutional investors versus you know, the proportion that's owned by retail investors. If that proportion is high and you, know, you use any of the uh, AMC GameStop stories that came up over the pandemic where retail ownership spiked, now those companies are interested in how do I make sure that I'm reaching out and integrating those retail holders into my investor relations activities. So that's where you get retail investors being allowed to ask questions on quarterly earnings calls. I mean, that was unheard of pre-pandemic, let alone you know five years ago. But now you've got retail investors asking questions on earnings calls, uh, listening in on analyst days, participating in shareholder meetings, and actually voting shares when traditionally IR teams were told to ignore the retail base because they're long-term sticky and they don't vote, so you don't have to worry about them. That's changed. And, and in fact, you have companies that are, that are now trying to figure out, okay, what's a new channel that I can use to reach out to my retail holders? Um, how can I draw more of them into being engaged with me so that I can understand their concerns and, and incorporate them? There are a couple of different um, companies that have emerged to service that. Uh, there's one called Stock Perks and one called Ticker. What they do is they create a retail, it's almost like a, a rewards program or a loyalty program. So a company can, you know, if you, if you are a consumer brand like, say, a Nike or Under Armour, you can actually reward your holders who are verified shareholders. And after a year, they get, you know, a, a gift certificate to use at the Nike store or on their next online uh, Under Armour purchase, whatever it might be. So that that's starting to become something that companies are willing to pursue where previously, you know, it was just, it was impossible if you had a team of two or, two or three people in your IR program to try to do outreach to thousands of retail holders. You just couldn't do it. Let me ask you an off-the-cuff question here. But, uh, you know, obviously everyone says GameStop and AMC, right? So I don't know if they were represented at Neary, but is there, 
Is there a sense of jealousy even from some of these IR? They 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 would want to be one of these companies, or they're <laughs> they're glad to not 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 for what the company provides or the the stability of the company, but would would they have wanted to be one of those darlings, or they're glad to be not? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I talked to the head of IR at, at GameStop at one point before they did one of their first earnings calls where they incorporated uh, retail input. And I was thinking about it. We had a discussion internally, like, you know, would you want to be in that seat? And from an IR standpoint, it's sort of like, hey, I'm, I'm doing something that nobody else has done and nobody else has had to experience. Being in the seat, I mean, you're, you know, that chair is on fire, right? You are under a microscope and, and everything you do is going to be pretty closely scrutinized. So personally, I would have really found some great challenges in, in having a role in a company like that. The downside is, you know, look look where they were and what got them there and, and, yep. and what they still face today, right? I mean, GameStop and AMC both raised over a billion dollars in at-the-market stock sales. So they've got a lot of people who bought stock at prices that are extremely underwater today. Now, yep. some people said, hey, that's YOLO, you know, uh, that was money, that was play money, it didn't matter. But there are investors who that who means got you only live once. <laughs> I just wanted to interpret that for you in case. Oh, I thought it was a musician or something. <laughs> okay. Yo Yo Ma's sister or yeah, something. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, Yolo Ma. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, you know, crack myself and, up here. And then you know, and then you're stuck with a story. Do you all you know? And I'll use GameStop as an example. Do you want to be the head of IR or on the IR team for a company that is known for brick and mortar? video game sales. And in all fairness to GameStop, you know, I think with the cash that they did raise, they, you know, they have potentially the opportunity to change their strategy dramatically in a way that they never would have been able to otherwise. So five years from now, they could be a, a darling of the street. But you are stuck with, for a, a period of time, trying to address a, uh, a portion of the investment community with a story that they don't really care about. They're not interested in you know, what the, the cash generation potential of the business is. They want to know, are you going to do hoodie giveaways or, you know, <laughs> w- would, would you consider doing some sort of, uh, you know, GameStop AMC joint venture where you're you know, playing video games in theaters? That's the kind of stuff that came yeah, up. Yeah. Well, flipping back to kind of more uh, traditional corporate governance issues, one of the things we didn't talk about specifically is board diversity, um, which obviously has been an issue with the the NASDAQ um, rule change that requires some minimum uh, degree of board diversity. My serious question, John, is that is, is this something that is um, companies are are taking dealing uh, seriously, feeling pressure, and, and is it actually making a, a difference at the end of the day in terms of the composition of their governing boards? I think it is. I, I, I don't have a statistic I can quote, but I know that there's been a lot of monitoring of how the both the average age, the, the gender, the, the overall diversity is changing on boards. I think what's, what's interesting is every board member who retires or ages out or drops out because of conflicts with other uh, board commitments, that decision to identify the board replacement has gotten more complex now. And there's certainly gender and, and race diversity inclusion issues that are now having to be considered because if you don't consider them, you're going to get 
criticized and you know potentially investors will end up you know not supporting the vo- the board whether it's due to an activist or whether it's due to just one of the top holders they are beginning to to look at the the board composition and take positions on that so a, a topic we we ask a lot of guests but I'm curious from your perspective is IR and the pandemic how did how did that change you know did it evolve um return to office in an IR community an IR meeting with issuers like the extent to which they did that prior I, I don't really know but uh what's that dynamic like now yeah you know the the biggest shift when the pandemic first happened and everybody was sort of sent home and was working remotely was that earnings calls which had always been done sort of you get the management team together in a conference room and people are, you know, they got their notes spread out everywhere and they're able to point at each other and say, you take this question, that that had to be done remotely. And almost everyone responded with different methods of, you know, using Zoom or back channels to, you know, message back and forth. But miraculously, they were all pulled off pretty much flawlessly. The other big change was the idea that, well, you, you normally you went to a sell side sponsored conference. You did one or more days of one on one meetings in, you know, you're in a ballroom to start with a big presentation, and then you went to a smaller room and did all these meetings and shook hands with people. That all changed with you know the the pandemic and and the um, work from home environment. But what didn't change was the amount of interaction, and I think you know, and you saw it. From an exchange standpoint, the volume, the volatility, if it changed, it went up, not down. And I, I had said that working from home and, and doing investor meetings on a remote basis didn't affect the, the IR community because, one, they were able to do it. But we, you know, we've lived for, you know, there are now conferences and face-to-face meetings that are happening. But for the first year, when, when there really were no uh, face-to-face meetings going on, Ownership decisions were being made. You know, companies were going public. You know, IPOs happened. All of that, all of the mechanics of uh, trading occurred. And there wasn't a slowdown in the turnover that we saw. We actually looked at, a couple of times at, you know, did top ownership see some kind of change? Were, were top owners uh, holding on longer and, and couldn't find any real correlation um, Do you think some of these changes are are here to stay, right? So even even in our world, like um, the business development sales teams going out to meet with buy side and sell side, we were able to do it remotely. I'm not suggesting you don't go meet and interact with humans, but do you think like even business travel in all industries is down? Do you think like uh, the the road shows when people go public will be will be a little bit different, or just the 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 willingness for a CEO to fly to a conference in Boston to meet with face-to-face investors, will that change forever or slowly trickle back? What do you think? I think there's, um, you know, there, there's sort of a, uh, a hybrid, and, and I don't mean hybrid on an individual event basis, but a, a hybrid approach. Face-to-face meetings are still super valuable, and the buy side is, is welcoming those. You know, you can go today to Boston and meet with Fidelity or go to Baltimore and meet with T. Rowe. You know, uh, Katie Vote. Uh, is at Baliozny. They are hosting meetings in-house on a regular basis now. But I think IR teams are are being pressured by their management team to make sure that if I'm going out on the road, that needs to be a productive use of my time. I'm I'm not going to fly to a conference and you know attend for a day or two days and have half of those meetings 
be in a room with me on a computer with somebody who chose not to come to that conference. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine that the meetings are going to go away. I mean, the bar may be higher, but I would also think that um, for particular kinds of uh, companies, if you are willing to make in-person meetings, um, you may be able to engage in clients in a way that people who won't do in-person meetings can't. Um, right. You know, there's a certain, there's just a, uh, continues to be, I would think, uh, a certain advantage in face-to-face um communication that you just can't get. Totally agree. But John, you hit the nail on the head there when you said, like, I've gone to conferences where the conference is allowing hybrid access. And then you go to the conference, you fly to the conference, you're there in person. And some of the people that you want to meet have a wrong term, but they have an easy out to zoom into the damn thing. And I would imagine if I was a big, powerful CEO flying to a conference and sitting in a room having a one-on-one with an investor back in another city, I'd be pretty pissed off. So... Yeah, yeah and, I don't know. And do you do might conferences even, start to mandate in-person attendance? Yeah, I think we're, we're it, not here to kind of deal with your personal issues, Ronan. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate you're, you're on mute, John. But, Are you trying yeah. to say something? <laughs> <laughs> the, I think that I think the pissed off aspect, especially, is you'd be pissed off that you did all that, but you'd also be pissed off at your IR team because they allowed that to happen. And so that, that's why I say the hybrid environment. There will be events that end up being entirely in person. So if you're going to a sell-side conference, you know that there won't even be the potential for someone to zoom in, as you, as you described, Ronan. And there'll be other conferences that are entirely virtual. And you know the company can choose. I, I don't need to fly anywhere. I can participate in this. And I know that everyone else who's participating will be virtual. The idea of having both, one, it's more expensive for the, for the conference provider. So I think th- that's a disincentive. But the the lack of satisfaction or the dissatisfaction that could occur with that unexpected change. It's just something that everyone's going to steer away from. From an in-person meeting, so you talked about the IPO roadshows or if you're just you know, doing a non-deal roadshow, an NDR, that's where it becomes a little bit more company dependent because if I'm a, a highly attractive story, it's going to be very easy for me to go to New York and book a day or two of meetings or go to Boston and get a full schedule if I'm a story that maybe is a little bit more challenging or, or damaged in some way, I've got a turnaround aspect, it could be tougher for me to go to New York and get a full day's meetings or two days worth of my CEO or CFO's time. So if I'm going to do some kind of a, a hybrid in that, I have to really make sure that they're prepared for that. Because otherwise, they might say, great, let's just do it and I'll do it from my office or from my home and we'll, we'll do it all hybrid. Cool. So listen, um, we we tend to try and make these podcasts uh, uh, shorter than some of the other long-winded podcasts. So we'll probably (laughs) now go to... We failed in that regard with this one. Well, we'll just cut out your long-winding question. (laughs) I'll I'll have John re-recorded his 20 lines as one line. Anyway, you did great, Nunziati. Ramsey. um, (laughs) No worries. (laughs) Like a pet rock. Anyway, the question of questions that we ask every guest. you were precious, if not prescient. Thank you. There you go. John Nunziati. What is your favorite Wall Street movie and why? All right. Uh, you know, I, I've listened to enough of them that I know. I, my first exposure to a commodities exchange was in uh, Trading Places. Um, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, great comedy value. So that, that you know, if you call that a Wall Street uh, connection. But the other one that I mm-hmm. think is interesting is um, Working Gruel with uh, Melanie Griffith. 
um, where she, she it was an investment banking Interesting. story. I think we did uh, have one other working girl. Yeah, uh, really. Pick. It, uh-huh. it was, it was a great so. story. Um, yeah. And and as a side note, if you haven't watched uh, Black Monday, uh, a TV series, I think it's Showtime puts it on with uh, Don Cheadle. Really good. It's sort of like a fake documentary around um, the the crash and and what caused the the crash of eighty seven. So. Yeah. Wow. This week, you gave us three answers, John. <laughs> you gave us three. I mean, I mean, man, I am going to actually uh, try to find that one. That's great. Yeah. 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 What do we got for our guest, Ronan? We always say no <laughs> one leaves here with nothing, but they leave here with next to nothing. Your very own boxes and line socks. <laughs> Woo! All right. <laughs> yes. They're very wearable, though. I say this all the time, but I do like They're these very socks. attractive They're, and yeah. wearable. Nobody has sent them back, nobody's complained. Right. High quality. Uh, I think. Uh, yeah. We've no photos with people's toes poking through them yet. <laughs> yeah, don't 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 post them, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, I, Mr. Nanjiani, we anyway. we. <laughs> no, I mean John Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we appreciate you joining us as a guest. It was great as always to reconnect. And for now, we'll go over and out. John, right. God bless you all. Until next time. Thank you both. <laughs> Come back to boxes and lines. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster, with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.